All right, well, uh, thanks everyone for joining us here today. So this is the live first recording of Zero Trust 30 podcast. If you haven't checked it out before, we've got about 17 or 18 episodes that we've already recorded. Uh, You can find them wherever you listen to your podcast or go to appgate.com forward slash podcast to learn more. So let's go ahead and get this thing kicking off. Um, Welcome to Zero Trust 30. I'm your host, George Wilkes, and this is the show that helps you make sense of the cybersecurity sensation that is Zero Trust. Uh, first live recording at RSA 2022, and I'm joined here by Jason Garbus, who's our Chief Product Officer here at AppGate. He's also the co-author of Zero Trust Security. You can see the stack of books behind him there. Uh, and he's also the co-chair of the Cloud Security Alliance Zero Trust Working Group. So, Jason, thanks so much for being here. Great to be here, George. Absolutely. Honored to be in your presence, sir. <laughs> I was going to actually ask Jason whether or not he's uh, gained any additional credentials since the last time we spoke, since there's so many things coming behind his name there. But uh, I think he has an honorary doctorate from somewhere already. There you go. I'm sure he does. And then, uh, of course, here is uh, Mr. Jim Anthony. And Mr. Jim Anthony is our SVP of cybersecurity here at AppGate, and he helps a lot of enterprise customers kind of really help navigate their zero-trust journeys, uh, build their architectures, and, and help them find the right solutions so that they can achieve zero-trust principles and progress through this uh, maturity curve that we're going to be talking about today. And cheers to all you coffee drinkers out there. There you go. All right. So before we do anything, what we like to do in the podcast is we play a game called What's Bugging You? So this is a little bit of fun. We ask each guest basically a very simple question of what is bugging them? And given that we're at RSA today, I'm sure there's some things that are happening. Jason, what's bugging you? Good, sir. It's, uh, you know, it's early in the morning. I don't really have anything that's terribly bugging me yet. <laughs> um, it is noisy and we are doing live TV here, so to speak. So anything could happen. Um, I think I've, I'm yet to be overwhelmed by the number of vendors and the noise and the marketing BS, but uh, the day's still young. Yeah. I tell you, something's really bugging me. All of these vendors that are here on this trade show floor, they are mixing the message. They are confusing everyone that's walking up to their booths. Yep. They're talking about all these zero trust things that they do and that come buy my product because I'm zero trust. It's confusing for everybody that's walking around out there. And this is a no BS zone. So we're here talking about no BS. Let's talk real stuff about what zero trust really is, what it means, what we're doing with it, what we do do, what we don't do, and what we can integrate with. That's what's bugging me. And now you got me wound up, Jim. Thanks a lot. Um, it's you know this is true, and I think I'm not going to name names, but there's a vendor around here, and on their on their booth it says make security possible, and the implication is buy our stuff and make security possible, and I think that is BS because really it's up to our listeners and folks who are security professionals to take that responsibility and to make real effective security possible in their organizations. If you think about what Zero Trust really is, it's a demonstrably better way to achieve security that overcomes the flaws and the weaknesses and the, let's be honest, really lousy track record that we as an industry have in protecting our customers and our industries and our governments and our data. And Security professionals you know, really need to understand zero trust is a much better way. And yeah, it's hard, but it's a lot better and it's a lot easier than continuing to do things that with traditional, weak, siloed and disconnected and very static systems that they have in place. And that you have a responsibility to be a leader and to push and pull and prod and poke and drag and fight your organization forward because there is a better way to do this and you've got to do it. You can't just sit back and play with technology and say okay, this is good enough. I got another point solution. Now I'm all worked up, Jim. There you go. You're welcome. I knew something was bugging you, Jason. I knew something was. So uh, that's a great segue. So that's actually what I'm going to do is just give a quick definition from Forrester as to what Zero Trust is to kind of set the stage. 
So this is the way Forrester defines it. It's an information security model that denies access to applications and data by default. Threat prevention is achieved by only granting access to networks and workloads utilizing policy informed by continuous contextual risk-based verification across users and their associated devices. So what we're gonna do today is we've kind of got these four stages. Let me do a little slide transition. These four, uh, I'm sorry, Jason's gonna correct me. We've got the uh, three stages of zero trust maturity starting with stage zero, so you can... Uh, no, 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 it's four. It's it four. is four stages. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. This is a great, you know, in classic computer science, you always start with zero because of the index. <laughs> yeah. So stage zero is a stage. Yeah. So we've got the implicit uh, trust stage, the basic zero trust stage, contextual zero trust, and adaptive zero trust. And uh, for everyone in the audience here, you can see that Jason and Jim have these brochures, and we can hand these out, and everyone can get them. There is a lot of density in here, right? A lot of technical nuances, a really good guide to help you progress through this journey. We're not going to get into all of those details here today. We did record a webinar, uh, was that about a month ago, where we actually did go a little bit deeper into this. But what we're going to do is kind of touch on these at a very abstract and conceptual level to help give you a sense as to what these four different stages uh, are designed to achieve and where you might be uh, across those different pillars. So let's go ahead and start with the QA. And uh, Jason, if you don't mind, I'm going to start with you. Uh, can you give us a little bit of background? Like, what, what was it that spurred you and Jim and the team to kind of build this maturity model? And, and how, did you how, did you, how did you get to where we are today with a finalized actual product there? So there's, um, there are a lot of maturity models out there around zero trust. And some of them are pretty good, and some of them are, are not. Um, for example, the uh, U.S. CISA organization has a maturity model, which is... You know, uh, defines kind of the core pillars or the core areas around identities and devices and workloads and networks. And we thought that was a really good starting point. And in fact, those core pillars are what most of the maturity models and most of the industry has really oriented themselves around as kind of the structure. And of course, maturity models, as you look at them, they typically have three or four stages. But what we felt was really missing was the focus on, okay, great, here I am in stage one for identity, and here I am for stage two in identity, but actually, how do you get from one to the other? That's what we really felt was missing, and that's why in our maturity model, we have this notion of transition steps, which is, okay, I'm here, and maybe I've got siloed identity providers, and I've got multi-factor authentication that's only in place for certain users, and in stage two, you know, things are a little bit different, but what do I do? How do I get from one step to the other? That's what we felt was missing. That's why this ended up being so dense is that, uh, or maybe information rich is a better yeah, term. That's a better way. Uh, yes, thank you. How do I get from one step to the other? And that's what we really felt was missing and what makes it actionable for customers. I think another thing to point out is that we attempted to make this maturity model in a way that was independent of what we as a company do and what our software product actually does. The idea is that we're, we're going to help you understand all the different pillars that most of the different organizations that are out there defining these these models, whether it's Forrester or CISA or whoever, we're going to identify with those so that we rank with them, but then help you understand how to measure yourself in each one of these different categories and how to progress to the next stage, regardless of whether you buy my product or not. My product's going to help you with some of these. It's not going to help you with others. So it's an independent assessment of, of where am I and how do I get to the next level and all these different pillars that are associated with cybersecurity in general. So if you think about workloads, think about the human element, think about the network traffic, think about all the different concepts of things that you need to lock down. It's easy enough to be in stage zero in one item and stage three in another. This will help you focus in on those areas that are lacking some of that maturity and give you the ideas on how you can actually advance to the next level in each of those independent categories. 
Yeah, that, and that's a good point. We really wanted this to be neutral and approachable and useful for any organization, even if they choose not to use our solution. And if you look at many of the maturity models that are out there, vendors will have something on the website and maybe you fill out a few questions and you get a map or a maturity assessment that is way too oriented toward their products and their solutions. And we didn't want them to do that. I mean, we're no BS zone. I love it. So let's go ahead and uh, start breaking down the first stage here of implicit trust. Um, you know, I'm sure a lot of people are in this existing stage and looking to adopt zero trust. So I think this is a really good opportunity to kind of set the scene around a lot of the challenges that people are facing um, in this particular stage. Jim, you want to kick us off here and kind of paint the picture? Yeah, for sure. So the idea of implicit trust is, you know, at the least uh, mature level is things are happening on your network, things are happening within your environment that you tend to trust that it's okay that it's happening because it's always been that way. Uh, the idea that all of your end users can see every IP address, every open port on your data center network. Eh, we've never been hacked that way. I'm, I'm guarding the front door anyway. Once they're in, they're trustworthy. I'm going to let them poke around, do whatever it is they need to do. How about you lock down all those different uh, IP addresses, all those open ports, move it to the next level and, and more granularly define what people are allowed to see on that network, even though they're trustworthy employees, even though they have credentials. And so the, the maturity model will help step through from zero to one to two and so on. How do I advance particular elements in that direction? Um, another idea of, of implicit trust is, hey, I've, I've issued you a corporate laptop. I've put antivirus on it. I, I implicitly trust that thing now because it's a corporate issue device. It's joined to the domain. Well, what happens if that end user uh, does something that causes your antivirus to crash? Are you still checking that that antivirus is still running? You know, there's things that you can do to ensure that that level of trust is not only established when you issued the laptop in the first place, but that it's maintained throughout the life cycle of that laptop uh, without, without uh, you know, interfering that end user. It might even change mid-session, right? How do, I, how do I sense that something has changed mid-session while that user is actually connected and what can I do about it? And advancing in the maturity model is going to help you identify these steps you can take. Yeah. In this notion of implicit trust, which is, of course, just the default way that we've operated computer networks and how TCP IP has operated for 50 years since it was invented in the 1970s. And it's, it's designed, our networks were designed for easy connectivity and easy visibility. And, of course, there was implicit trust because back in the day, they just had to get this stuff to work, and it worked very well. But there was never any notion or ability to get the visibility or to impose any sort of restriction around before uh, for authentication or for any sort of authorization before allowing a connection from a device on the network. Of course, you implicitly trust it. That's just the way these things work. And it also highlights the dichotomy or the gap that traditionally exists between networking, which is great. I, got, well, I, want, I need the ability to send packets from here to here easily. And if I don't do that, I'm not doing my job as a network engineer. You want me to put blockers in place? Forget it. No. You know, my SLA on the network is five nines and high throughput and low latency. And that completely contrasts and is at odds with the notion of security and identity, which is I need to know who these people are before I allow them to access things. And you have these two things in opposition, which is at the root of so much of the vulnerabilities and the, the breaches that we see, which is some malware gets on the network one way or the other, and it bypasses authentication or it's running on the workstation. And then from the network perspective, it's, hey, this is just a user traffic. Of course, I'm going to let them do this. In fact, I'm going to give them accelerated pathways to get their packets from here to there. And 
exfiltrate my data even more quickly. By the way, there's, there's, there's a lot of vendors here at RSA that are violating this implicit trust concept, right? They're, they're trying to convince prospects out there, hey, route your traffic out to my cloud. Let my cloud sort that out, right? That, that's a zero trust plus one. You're, you're implicitly trusting their cloud, right? Uh, or their service that they're making available. So scrutinize those kinds of choices. Scrutinize those decisions. Um, why would I trust some public cloud platform when I could directly control that traffic anyway on a, on a network pathway of my own choice? I can choose that pathway if I choose the right technologies that help me get there. Another thing that some vendor architectures do is they work fine, I guess, for remote users, but they don't provide a comprehensive and useful solution for those same users when they come into the office, which people are now doing nowadays. And what those architectures do is they either don't apply and they say, well, just fall back on your on-premises NAC or firewall ACLs, or they require the traffic to be routed up from the user's device to the vendor cloud and then back down to the data center, which is, I think, insane is the right term for it. And in, in my mind, what zero trust is all about is not just some of the things we talked about, but really becoming the central nervous system for your security and for your IT environment. And zero trust really requires to have a holistic security model to get rid of these silos that have caused so much friction and additional expense and work and caused so many security problems where you've got one solution for remote access with technology and teams and policies in one silo and a completely different set of technology for on-premises users and on-premise security. It's insane to have that. And now that you have users coming back into the office, it's really time to say, I need a holistic model that applies uniformly so I can have one set of policies and one set of access controls and one set of systems that ties into my endpoint management system and my risk model and my help desk system that, to control all of this. It's time for us to do that. No, thank you both for that. And um, I think it's you know important to reinforce that this is a multi-year journey and it's gonna be unique for every single organization. But when we start kind of transitioning from this idea of implicit trust to basic zero trust, which is stage one, there's some low-hanging fruit there, right? So Jim, why don't you uh, go ahead and take uh, stage one for us and, and help everyone understand what that looks like. Yeah, so, so thinking through it just a little bit, you know, think about the idea of um, using encryption technology to allow access to environments, right? I'm gonna encrypt the inbound traffic. Uh, I'm gonna start that encryption from the end user device itself. Maybe I'm gonna use a traditional VPN to achieve that, right? Maybe I'm gonna encrypt that traffic through a land-to-land -land connection. Um, it's a great first step, right? Th let's think about that as something that we need to do. We, we take the traffic out of the clear. Um, you know, it's a great option. Another thing to think about is uh, perhaps I need to start locking down my most important applications with an MFA, right? I need to implement a multi-factor solution that I can put and associate with ind individual applications and make sure that that user that's trying to connect has the proper MFA for those important applications. So a couple of just obvious things to think about moving from an implicit trust to beginning to lock things down uh, from that scenario, moving into stage one. Jason, you got anything to add to that? Yeah, I think in this stage, the organization is going to start to see some real, you know, perhaps focus, but real benefits of improved user experience, um, the ability to lock down the highest value assets, whether it's isolating them on the network or enforcing dynamic uh, or even static multi-factor authentication. Um, and it's important for, for enterprises to understand that they don't have to do this in some giant first project and get backed up behind something like, well, I need to understand 
everything that's on my network, or I need to get my identity systems in order and all consolidated and running perfectly. And that's definitely not the case. Those are both necessary things, but this is a journey. It is going to take uh, you know, a year or more or you know, an, ongoing, an ongoing project. There are absolutely going to be some very short-term projects that folks can do, whether it's isolated or focused on a new cloud environment or high-value on-premises access, a- assets or applying uh, modern identity and multi-factor authentication to maybe some legacy mainframe or mini systems that are running the business or taking your... Uh, system administrators and applying tighter access controls to them. Those are all really good candidates to start with. Another thing that we really recommend that customers do, that security teams do, is to start to use this first project as a way to build bridges and relationships with their peers on the business side. Because zero trust is not just technology and security. As much as we love that and can talk about it all day long and hide in our offices and do that and be happy, that's actually not enough. Because What Zero Trust is all about is aligning to the business. Whatever the business's mission is, whether it's a hospital or an insurance company or a uh, manufacturer, there are absolutely going to be things that the business struggles with. There's poor user experience, there's friction, there's inability for the business to innovate, and Zero Trust is about unlocking ways for the enterprise to do that and to innovate and to move forward quickly while improving security. Yeah, and then, uh, you know, really once you've got that baseline of, of basic zero trust and you've got some of that low-hanging fruit stuff, you've got those VPNs out of the way, you've already improved your security posture relatively significantly at that point, but then you really start kind of looking at what are some of the more uh, uh, efficiencies that you can gain and some of the other ways in which you can improve that zero trust implementation across your organization. I think that's where the power of context really comes into play, and that's that's, that's not a new theme, right? Context is, is definitely baked into the definition that, that Forrester has here. Jason, let's keep it with you for a minute. Paint this picture of what the, the role of context looks like here in stage two. So when you're doing this, there's really two dimensions to context. There's context around the user and the device, and then there's context around the workloads. And both of those are really important as in this stage, you start to build policies that are aware of context. So on the user side, clearly the contextual information about the user can include things such as geolocation, identity profiles, and group memberships for the users, as well as device posture checks. All of those things are important and need to be part of a policy model. So the policy can take into consideration where user is, what time of day it is, what their role is, to determine should they get access to these resources. The system also needs to be able to be begin to be tied to other elements of the ecosystem, like a, a risk score that might come from an endpoint management system. That absolutely needs to be tied into the, uh, the access policy and the access enforcement mechanism, not just at time of authentication, because that's going to happen once a day maybe, but throughout the course of the session. And if the endpoint management system detects anomalous activity or for whatever reason that this user or device risk score has gone up, that needs to be fed into the zero trust system so it can respond change the user's access, maybe enforce step-up authentication, et cetera. On the workload side, the workloads themselves also have context. And you need a system, a set of zero-trust policy enforcement points that can interrogate the workload or the workload's platform, look at the metadata for the workload, and detect changes to that, and adjust user access accordingly. So, for example, if you've got a DevOps environment and you have workloads that change their status from dev to test to production... Absolutely, when those tags change in that workload, that access needs to change, not just for the users, but for the system itself. Clearly, you've got a workload running in test. It needs to be able to, for example, have a connection to a test database. When it moves to production, 
of course it can't connect to that test database anymore. It's got to connect to a production database. All of these things are context. And in order to operate not just at speed and scale, but with absolute reliability to take humans out of the loop, this all needs to be driven by these attributes and have your zero trust system adapt. You got anything to add, Jim? Yeah. Uh, so context is an interesting problem to solve for, right? Context is not something that you sit down and decide one day, this is the context I'm looking for. This is the thing that I want to know. Because over time, you're going to realize there's more context that suddenly becomes interesting. Things you didn't think about the first time you sat down will, will perhaps pop in in some nefarious way in the future, and you suddenly have a new element of context you need to pay attention to. So understanding context, both on the user and the workload side, is a journey in and of itself. I might be interested today to know what groups you belong to, right, and, and map you to the right apps. Tomorrow, I might realize, well, knowing the groups is one thing, but knowing whether you're on-prem or off-prem is another. And, and then in the future after that, you might say, oh, knowing if you're off-prem and inside of the boundaries of a certain uh, continent or country or state is important as well, because I want to eliminate those coming from outside the country or in nefarious countries. So there's all kinds of things around context that, that uh, don't think that, that one day you'll decide what context means to you, and that'll, that'll be the gospel into the future. It's going to change and adapt and grow with you as you increase your maturity on all the different pillars associated with zero trust. Well, and that context is also a stepping stone into the into the final stage here of adaptive zero trust, right? And so you start then taking that context and you layer on things like programmability and actually weaving this into the ecosystem that you have within your existing tooling and everything. So Jason, let's 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 talk about adaptive zero trust because this is where really things get very interesting, right? And you can really start really breaking in some efficiencies. And again, it's not just about security posture. It is about those efficiencies gained, that automation that can be put into play. I'm not going to steer thunder you go ahead and take it away yeah exactly so in this stage this is where zero trust really starts to add um, real value and tying into much bigger systems and processes than security teams have traditionally been involved with so let's think about you know our favorite example which is controlling access based on a business process and if you think about our system administrators what's their job their job is to among other things fix problems on systems and you're in an environment, you've got a thousand production systems. On any given day, 10 or 20 of those have a problem that a system administrator needs to fix. But the challenge is that, first of all, you don't want these admins to have 24 by 7 by 365 network access to those servers. Let's put, even without login credentials, having network access is just an invitation to disaster either malicious users or malicious software on their users' devices. So you need to restrict their access, but at the same time, you want them to be fully productive. And the answer is it's kind of pretty magical is to tie that to a business process such as a service desk or an IT service management help desk. So what a zero trust system needs to do in this really adaptive world is have the ability to integrate with that ITSM help desk and receive information or interrogate it and get information about which system administrators have tickets assigned to them for requiring them to log in and perform some task on a production server. If that ticket exists, it's assigned to a given user and it's in the open state, that user now has a network pathway and the ability to access that target server. As soon as they fix that problem, do that task and close the ticket, that network asset access goes away. So what happens is the user is fully productive and happy, they can do their job. The system itself requires and enforces them to follow the business process, which is what we all want. So the business has an audit record of this. They're fully, it's fully self-documenting from a compliance perspective. And 
it makes the whole organization a lot more resilient. So this is one example of adaptive zero trust that you know, in the old days, this would either have to be manually done, which would take forever, and would be uh, prone to error, or just simply wouldn't be done at all. And this is exactly the kind of thing that zero trust is good at and what organizations need to reach for. I, just, to, just to jump onto that a little bit, I think one of the things to think about is you know, I, I harp on context a lot because context applies to so many different things when it comes to understanding what's going on in the environment. Reaching maturity level three and understanding context, ask yourself the questions as you're walking around RSA this year. Whatever vendor you're standing in front of, when do you establish context? How does that happen? Most likely it's going to happen at login time, right? When the user actually attempts to authenticate against something, context is going to be established. What happens then? If you're at maturity level three, context changes, potentially user access changes, right? If somebody's antivirus suddenly crashes mid-session, should they still be able to access your finance system? Or would you prefer to kick them out and let them remediate their antivirus situation, right? Uh, what happens if they show up on a different Wi-Fi connection all of a sudden, right? Or they show up connecting from a different location uh, other than what they previously logged into. Might it be time to trigger an MFA, right? That's where context change happens. It has to, you have to be able to do it at maturity level three, mid-session, understand programmatically what's going on in real time and prompt that user, prompt that workload, do the things you need to do to reestablish trust, even though that session's already been established. So it's an important idea to think about. You talked a lot about users, but zero trust is, as we, as we mentioned, intended to be a holistic and very comprehensive approach and philosophy. And besides users, especially as organizations get up towards stage two and stage three, they need to look at how do I apply these principles to my servers, to my containerized workloads, and even to other devices on the networks, IoT devices like printers and VoIP phones and IP cameras or manufacturing or, or medical monitoring systems. All of these things are network devices, and therefore they're an attack surface, and they are a part of the business. They need to be rolled into a zero-trust system, and when organizations get to the stage, they need to look at a platform that can help them take advantage of this and understand, okay, I've got users, administrators, who have to access my building management system in the buildings I manage. And those same building management systems need the ability to reach back up to my data center to push telemetry and data. How do I do that in a way that doesn't require some insecure wide area network for those things? Jason, you make a great point. And just to drive it home a little bit further, something else to think about. It is beyond users, right? So really the network traffic becomes the thing to think about. Anything on the network can be an attacker or an attackee. And it doesn't even require a human. I can have an infected piece of malware running on a server somewhere, and that thing can attack my other servers. Uh, I could have an infected webcam that is privileged enough to write to my storage array in my data center. That thing can become infected and go and run port scans and find other things to attack in the network. So everything on the network can be an attacker or an attackee. And it's something to think about as you consider all the pillars that are documented within this, uh, this chart that we've got. And this takes us back to eliminating this implicit trust, which is, okay, I've got network traffic emanating from this device on my network, which I think is a webcam, and I shouldn't allow it to do anything except a very clearly defined set of, uh, of accesses, like write, the, write its video data to a certain location. At the same time, let's say that webcam is uh, plugged into our Ethernet port, then 
how do I know that some malicious actor hasn't plugged in their own laptop? I need to be able to look at what that thing is doing or even attempting to do it. Like if that webcam starts to do NMAP port scans, I need to shut that thing down because that's anomalous behavior and that's a real early indication that something weird is going on. Yeah, so I mean, this has been a fantastic conversation. I appreciate you both really going into it. Uh, it wasn't dense. It was information rich. Thank you, Jason, for correcting me on that one. Um, what we like to do on the podcast here is just kind of wrap things up, get away from uh, a lot of the subject matter and, and kind of lean into to who the guests are um, and ask them some questions. And it's a rapid fire thing. You guys have done this before. You've been on it. So um, I'm going to ask a question. You two just answer it as fast as you possibly can. We're in San Francisco. We're going to get a little touristy. Would you rather visit Alcatraz or ride a cable car? I'd visit Alcatraz. I'm going to go for the cable car. Oh, yeah? I love the journey, man. Okay. Uh, San Francisco Giants or Oakland Athletics? Giants. Warriors. <laughs> Celtics. There you go. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, people can walk, run, bike, the Golden Gate Bridge. Is that something you guys would do? Is, would, you, would you take that risk? You would go up there? In a heartbeat. 100% yeah. yes. All right. There you go. Hey, listen, so thank you both so very much. And for everyone out here in the audience, thank you. For everyone listening, thank you. This has been a, a great live first podcast at RSA 2022. Jason and Jim, thank you so very much. Thank you, George. Thank you. Thanks for listening to today's episode. You can find show notes and other episodes at appgate.com forward slash podcast. If you're not yet a a subscriber, please do subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. This show is a production of AppGate. The opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the hosts and the guests and may not represent the views of their organization. I'm your host, George Wilkes, and you've been listening to Zero Trust 30.